Dental Associates of Northern Virginia redefine what it means to visit the dentist. Get top-quality, personalized support from committed experts who prioritize the well-being and satisfaction of you and your family. Care is centered on a highly personalized treatment plan backed by the trust and support of long-lasting relationships. Schedule your next appointment by visiting dental1-va.com slash offer slash SiriusXM. Welcome back to Pod Save the World. I'm Tommy Vitor. I'm Ben Rhodes. Should I start again with um, talking shit to the world about the Boston Red Sox, or is that going to just lose us all our subscribers? I mean, you should feel pretty good about things. That was a pretty fun game. And I think you might be okay, because I don't know the, how many like Houston Astros fans are out there. Uh, Ted Cruz? Yeah, <laughs> yeah and, so there you go. <laughs> and a bunch of cheaters. <laughs> Talk away. Just kidding. Yeah. I get my hypocrisy here, blah, blah, blah. Uh, it's been very fun getting back into baseball, Ben. It's been a long time. Um, today, we've got a great show. We have a Nobel Peace Prize winner on the show. Somehow we booked a Nobel Peace Prize winner. Second time unbelievable who's the first oh obama, obama yeah. <laughs> come on <man>. <laughs> <laughs> yeah well this one's warranted yeah, yeah, this one's yeah, deserved yeah, yeah. uh maria ressa is our guest today she's the founder of rappler it's a digital media company in the philippines uh they've been doing incredible work about president rodrigo duterte we've talked about them before um they've been working under great duress uh threats from him uh you know they're trying to arrest them literally put them in prison so incredible interview she's an incredible person Ben and I are going to talk about the uh, murder of a British member of parliament, Colin Powell's death and legacy, some missile news, Ben. Missiles are having a moment this week. Uh, some bummer news on climate change, bummer. unfortunately. Yeah. Thank you, John. Uh, the fight against Viktor Orban in Hungary. Let's do it. We're going back up the roller coaster of emotion here. Go. Kidnapping in Haiti down, Sudan down, Brazil, medium. Ah. Uh, we got the queen. Yeah. I'm going to ask you to put on your royal correspondent yeah, hat no, if I'm you don't ready mind. For this one. I'm ready for this one. Uh, why Ted Cruz still sucks is what I wrote down. Uh, and then Wizards. Got, I went deep on the you know, Wizards the, story. the Wizard is, I actually didn't read on this because I wanted Good. to be surprised by it. <laughs> this can, when yeah. I saw that item, I was like, you know, I, I want to learn about this when you do it. You are going to, you're going to like, like this story. Uh, ben, um, the final episodes of 544 Days uh, from host Jason Resign are out. I think that these final episodes are like Argo level thrilling. They're totally. some of the best episodes of the whole series. If you have not listened yet, check it out. It's on Spotify. It's so good. It's free. Yeah. I, um, I'll i just preview it a little bit because I'm on the, the show. But mm -hmm. I'm, I, I mean, I guess there's spoilers here. But like I was at the White House and it was like becoming like later in the evening when we thought Jason was going to get out. And I'd already done the press call because it was leaking, you know, when you're like an embargoed oh, press God, call. Yeah. So it was like, hey, this is embargoed. That means you can't report on it until Jason is wheels up and laid it all out. And then he couldn't get out. Oh, my God. And you'll have to listen to the show to find out why he refused to leave even when he could have. Yes. Um, and I had to call a lid, remember that, like uh -huh. uh, to people who, like that means you tell the press to go home. Uh, we, you know, be, to to make people not think something was happening. It was very, so it was very, my tiny piece of the Argo experience was like, I was like the guy at the CIA headquarters who just had to clear the, um, 
the flight tickets, you know, like remember when like Affleck <laughs> yeah. rolls up to the fucking airport yep. and they've canceled his tickets. Yep, yep, yep. And there's some guy who's like, get Hamilton Jordan <laughs> on the fucking phone. You know, um, that was kind of like the role I was. That's a fun role. Yeah. That's a good yeah. role. Check it out. 544 days on Spotify. It's amazing. Also, if you're looking for a podcast that goes deep into the deepest nerd news of your favorite franchises, we have the show for you. X-Ray Vision from Jason Concepcion. He's talking Batman. He's talking comic books. And uh, Dave Schilling of the Galaxy Brain Podcast is there this week to talk about season three of Secession. The premiere was Sunday night. I loved every minute of it. I was like, it started. And within five minutes, I was sad that it was going to end at some point. I was like, I was like, I was just like sitting there. I was like, this is such a wonderful experience watching this again. I'm already depressed it's that so it's going to end and I'm not going to be able to watch another it's one. It's so good. You, you got any announcements you want to make? Any, uh, yeah, just one thing for the world those out there. I will be in Washington, D.C. this Friday. Ooh, swamp. October 22nd, returning Careful. to the swamp. The blob. Uh, I, yes, I will be interviewing Adam Schiff, friend of the pod, oh. um, about his new book at GW University, George Washington University, the Betts Theater on uh, Friday night. Nice. Kind of live, you know, Adam Schiff. Ben Rhodes shifty content. Shift. Yeah, yeah, shifty I love shift. It. I, you know what? I hate that Trump Benga- has incepted Benghazi, us with Benghazi these. Benghazi Ben, shifty shift. <laughs> yeah. you know, like, Trump has yeah, incepted just... us with these stupid nicknames. Yes. And I just can't get them out. That's awesome. That'll be a very fun event. It'll be a good event. Um, all right, Ben. So let's turn to the UK uh, because there was some really horrifying news out of the UK this weekend after a member of parliament named uh, David Amis was fatally stabbed in a church while meeting with constituents. He, Amis, is a, was a 69-year-old member of the Conservative Party. He was murdered in his district, which is about 40 miles east of London. Uh, a 25-year-old man named Ali Harbi Ali was arrested and is being detained under the UK's terrorism laws. Uh, there are some reports, I think, today in the UK media that Ali had once been referred to a program that's designed to prevent at-risk youth from being radicalized, but that he had fallen off the sort of like counter-terrorism world's radar. Um, Amis is the second British MP to be murdered in the last five years. In 2016, Joe Cox, a member of the Labour Party, was shot and stabbed to death by a far-right extremist with links to a neo-Nazi group in the US who yelled Britain first as he attacked her. Um, so, you know, the response is that people are just despondent. They're upset. They're they're shocked by this. Um, there's calls for Parliament to pass what's being shorthanded as David's Law, which would crack down on social media abuse of public figures and online anonymity. Not totally clear to me here, Ben, what those issues have to do with this specific case, but there is considerable frustration in the UK about the toxicity of the debate, yeah. the online abuse that MPs are, are dealing with, especially women. Um, so this is a horrifying story on so many levels. My heart goes out to Amos's friends, his colleagues. Here's where my morbid brain went. Yeah, my, my brain this. probably went to the same place. Okay. So we're all sitting here. We're all deeply frustrated with watching Republicans sort of spin the January 6th attack on the Capitol, right? And like welcome Trump back in the fold. I've always kind of wondered whether if a lawmaker had actually been hurt, yeah. and God forbid, killed, whether it would have forced Republicans to act more seriously about this or forced Trump to dial down the rhetoric. But I, now I don't know. I mean, maybe this experience in the UK undercuts that. I know that's a very like America focused view of what happened, but that's where my head went. Well, where my head went was, and first of all, it was terrible. Um, and, you know, British MPs, as much as kind of American House members, yeah. you know, they just kind of go out and meet their constituents. It's like a town hall meeting. Church, having town hall. I love that they call them surgeries. That um, confused me for a such while. Such a great British thing. They're like, he was at a surgery. Yeah. Um, but I mean, you know, the, the idea that you just, politics is a really direct event. 
um, is, you know, part of their democracy like it is ours. Um, where my head went, which includes America, but is globally, is that why wouldn't there be more of these? You know, like we saw in this country, we saw Gabby Giffords and then Steve Scalise get shot, mm-hmm. not not killed, thankfully. Uh, you mentioned Joe Cox. That's one kind of extremist, an extremist of the kind of white nationalist variety. Then this appears to be a, a, an Islamic extremist. But with the degree of hate and, you know, we saw those weird bomb threats and Trump MAGA guys with like vans. like Yeah, I mean, January know, 6th, um, there were pipe bombs everywhere. I mean, yeah, that, that was an yeah. attempted mass murder. There's clearly people out there who want to harm lawmakers and lawmakers in this country, in the UK, and a lot of democracies are vulnerable. They're amongst the people. And so I think the the, the risk of, of, of the growth of political violence is, is real. I think in the UK, there's valid questions about like, do you need some kind of security? And look, as much as you would like to not get rid of that sense of democracy, like having one person there who's a security person is at least a deterrent and probably would avert like a knife killing. Um, so I think they have to look at that. And then the online piece, you know, David Lammy, a friend of the pod, has t- tweeted and talked a lot about this. He gets heaps of death threats online. You know, he's a person of color. Women yep. and people of yep. color get it the most. And there is something about the kind of dehumanization of lawmakers uh, I mean, you hear a lot of concern expressed by like Ilhan Omar, for instance, about the, the the speech about her online kind of turns her or politicians generally into people who aren't, you know, they're almost subhuman yeah. to their detractors. And and so there's the physical security for the British politicians. There's the meta issue of like, are we going to be in an era of increased political violence? And then there is, I think, the connection to that law is like, the the degree of hate out there needs to be curbed uh, because it's contributing to this clearly. Yeah, this is going to be a complicated debate for them. They're going to be talking about sort of like post 9-11 war on terror programs. Uh, you know, in 2018, you know, 36 people were killed in four terror attacks in the UK, including that bombing at the Ariana Grande concert that feels yeah. like a million years ago. Yeah, yeah. There's going to be conversations about, you know, online abuse and censorship. And then, I, yeah, you're right. Like, I do think there's clearly like a more parochial answer, which is some sort of security for these MPs when yeah. they're out in the world. Yeah. Yeah. And and I've, you know, having, you know, there's there's something different than like Secret Service. Right? Yeah. Where and, get, and let's be clear, yeah, there's a cost yeah. to that. There's a cost to Secret Service there's and a the cost. distance it creates between you and the yes. people you're trying to serve. We saw yeah. it happen when Obama went from primary to general candidate to president. Yeah. I mean, the, and the question, I'm not the security guy, but like, have you know, Having one guy with an earpiece, you know, uh, standing there, whether that just deters people mm-hmm. from thinking they can like charge someone and stab them, you know, yeah. um, and, and without diminishing the feel of a, of a politician communicating directly with their constituents, I, I think that you have to find some some middle ground to do that. And yeah, there's obviously a, a, there's a literal cost to it too, but right. um, you know, the, the, if this becomes a more, I mean, every five years, that's way too common. Way you know? too common. Yeah. Way too common. Uh, let's turn to another really unfortunate death here in the U.S. So former Secretary of State, Chairman of the Joint Chiefs and National Security Advisor Colin Powell died Monday at age 84. Powell's immune system had been weakened by blood cancer, blood cancer treatment, and he died from complications from COVID-19. Um, by any definition, Ben, you know, Powell's career was extraordinary. He was the child of Jamaican immigrants. He rose to the highest ranks of the military in the U.S. government. He broke countless racial barriers. Um, he was someone who was widely 
respected by his colleagues and across political parties. And at one point, he was the most popular public figure in America in like the early 90s. But that reputation and the respect he had or people had for him ultimately kind of cut both ways because Powell lent his credibility to make the case for the war in Iraq. And I think many people would argue that his speech to the United Nations in 2003, where he walked through the Bush administration's deeply flawed or basically entirely wrong case that Iraq had weapons of mass destruction was one of the most important moments when it came to selling the invasion to the country, to the Congress, to the world. Powell was a Republican for for most of his career, uh, but in 2008, he decided to endorse then-Senator Obama over Senator McCain during an interview on Meet the Press. And in that speech, he expressed really prescient concern about the direction the Republican Party was headed in, especially the selection of Sarah Palin as VP in the racist, Islamophobic birther yeah. movement that had already popped up. And we, we were working for Obama then. I remember that being just an incredibly powerful moment in the campaign. It was a huge boost to us. You know, I think we were on a glide path to winning at that point, but it, w- it was really meaningful. Um, he later backed Clinton. He later backed Joe Biden. He, uh, he An email that Powell leaked where he wrote, uh, we called Trump a, quote, national disgrace and an international pariah was leaked, so no confusion about where he stood there. So Ben, what do you think about Powell's legacy like, or, or, or what it should be? And, and how prominent do you think the Iraq war is in, in you know, that epitaph and that conversation? Yeah, I mean, look, Colin Powell in many ways to me like embodies, exemplifies like a certain period at the end of the Cold War when America was like on top. You know, like he's there. He's a pathbreaker. He's the chairman of the Joint Chiefs. He's there at the Gulf War, which is like kind of the height of America flexing its muscle internationally. Whatever you think about the Gulf War, right. like Colin Powell kind of stood for competence and, you know, stewardship of like some international order because he he was reliable and credible and had integrity. Um, and and look, he, he was a person of character. Like you mentioned the the endorsement, like he he centered the endorsement in a very interesting way. Around the, the the accusations that you know accusations you know in air quotes here that Obama was Muslim mm-hmm. and he's like he's not but like the the real answer should be like why does it matter if he is so what if he is yeah. so what and if I want a seven year old kid in this country who's Muslim to think they could become president and he talked about a, a photo of of a gold star mother who lost her her son um, at Arlington with the grave so so this is a man of integrity who carried out his jobs very ably, you know, and had a moral compass that obviously the Republican Party lacks. Full stop. Then I think of like two moments for me, though, um, that are obviously tied to Iraq. And the first is when he made that case before the war. Mm -hmm. You have to keep in mind that that what Powell used to be known for was something called the Powell Doctrine, which was essentially America should it was all the lessons from Vietnam informed it, and it was that America should only go to war when there's a very clear objective, and you go in with kind of overwhelming force, and you have a very clear exit strategy. You yeah, know, yeah, and so like. Yeah. Iraq was none of those things. And after you've exhausted all diplomatic And options. after you've exhausted all, Iraq was none of the things, yep. literally, that Colin yep. Powell was for. And, you know, what he did essentially is, you know, he he convinced Bush to go to the United Nations to get a Security Council resolution, which they did to have inspections. Um, and then when those inspections weren't finding the weapons of mass destruction, they call on Powell to make the closing argument at the UN, right? And I'll never forget that. I was working at the Woodrow Wilson Center at the time. I was 24, I think, very new to DC, um, maybe 25. 
And I remember watching it and like Colin Powell was like a an unalloyed hero. I mean, mm-hmm. it's almost hard for younger listeners to appreciate like this man, you know, like he had the credibility of patriotism and national security and winning the Cold War and the Gulf War. Yeah, I, I read somewhere he was described as the most distinguished American to never serve as president of the United States. And that yeah. was an interesting dis- uh, description given how many of the former presidents are now disgraced, but I thought also kind of apt. Yeah, it was. No, that's exactly what he was. And 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 so when he like laid this out and, and, and is holding up like vials of, you know, fake anthrax <laughs> and like, I totally believed it, you know, and Sometimes people have asked me, you know, people might have noticed I have a little bit of a chip on my shoulder at the establishment <laughs> foreign policy. It all started there because to me it was like they're, they're all lying to me, even Colin Powell, you know. Um, and what was kind of tragic about it is I, the second thing I ever thought about is the, the most time I ever spent in a room with Colin Powell is I was a staffer on something called the Iraq Study Group. James Baker and Lee Hamilton were doing this big look at the Iraq war and they're going to make recommendations about it. It was 2006. And Powell came in to meet with for like over an hour. And Baker, I remember, knew exactly what Powell thought and was like, so why don't you tell us your story, Colin? And he laid out the most withering takedown of the run-up to the war, the decisions around the war, the, all the mismanagement of the occupation. He And it was clearly not revisionist history. These were clearly things that he had thought at the time, mm-hmm. right? So how do you think about that? I mean, I I stop a bit short of the, you know, reading some of this, you'd think that Colin Powell took us to war in Iraq. He didn't. And like the reality is it's ultimately George Bush's decision. And, and we shouldn't lose sight of that. You know, I think it's kind of wrong to say that, like, because if, look, Colin Powell was the president, we wouldn't have done that, right. you know. But, you know, like, it's a, also a reminder that everybody who goes into government, I, I, a lot of younger people I, I talk to who are going to government, one of the questions they ask me is like, hey, how do I think about my red lines? You know, like when I might quit or what I refuse to defend. Don't right? announce them at a press briefing. Yeah, <laughs> yeah there's that too. <laughs> um, and look, he's a, like, the lesson is, you shouldn't go along with things that you know are wrong that are that consequential. You know? Yeah, because um, well, there's a lot of speculation. Okay, let's say Powell resigns. Would a bunch of the State Department employees resigned in mass? Would that have given the Foreign Secretary in the UK the standing to like? Who knows? It's impossible to Monday morning quarterback this stuff. But that's sort of like some of the coverage you're reading today. Yeah, I mean, everybody thinks, and he had as good a reason as anybody to think that they're kind of indispensable, and if they leave, the thing will fall apart. But then you have to weigh that against, well, if you stay, is anything changing because you're there? Mm-hmm. Now, he was, by all accounts, beloved at the State Department and really kind of got the back of the people who worked there. But, you know, if he'd resigned, I don't know. I mean, it would have been much harder to go to war. I mean, if Colin Powell resigned and said, I don't think this is a good idea. Would have been a bad news day for Dick Cheney in yeah, the, in the yeah, gang. Yeah. That's for and, damn sure. And, and so, like... You know, in many ways, I look at Colin Powell, we've reflected a lot on kind of the end of this era of American, whatever you're going to call it, hegemony. And that has uh, the successes of the post-Cold War years and the failures and the collapse of post-9-11. He, you know, he is a part of all that. And, and, and you can find plenty to criticize about his service in the Bush administration or, frankly, you know, in the Reagan, you know, yeah, Ron Contra, he was kind of, he was at least a Ron Contra adjacent, you know. Um, but he's a man of integrity. And I think that always kind of came through. And that's why the Iraq thing 
stung so much because it cut against exactly what you believed in him, which is that he would always tell you the straight truth. You know? Yeah. And, you know, obviously, like when you break that many racial barriers, you're an inspiration to a lot of black Americans like Jamal Bowman, super liberal, you know, maybe Democratic Socialist member of Congress uh, from New York tweeted as a black man just trying to figure out the world. Uh, Colin Powell was an inspiration. He's from New York City, et cetera, et cetera. Like, you know, rest in power, sir, was sort of the end of that tweet. Uh, and it was just a sign that, you know, you can have admiration for, for people who you don't agree with politically or for who have made massive mistakes uh, in their lives while still criticizing those mistakes. And I think it's a good way to look at things. It is. And look, Obama really looked up to him. Um, and I remember he used to meet with him a lot more than people like knew. I, you know, you'd have him in. Hmm alone too though he'd never meet with him in like those groups you know former officials like and i think part of the reason why they met alone is i think they probably talked about this piece of it you know being a black person in rooms where there were no black people which is a lot of national security conversations you could always tell when Powell was there because he drove like a corvette really and so you'd see this like nice. vet in the west or old. yeah uh, it was like old enough to be kind of a classic-y kind wow, of good for him thing like had a carburetor and stuff yeah you know but i i i see like on the one i had the complicated emotions too of like i wanted colin powell to get all the love but also why is it kind of like no left of center figure is allowed to to have universal adulation? You know, it's always like people on the right that, you know, like you can nothing better than like a never Trumper, you know, Republican. Um, but the flip side of that is like I we have to have people that we collectively look up to. It's part of like having a national identity, you know, and he means a lot to different constituencies for different reasons. You yeah. know, he means yeah. something to black people. He means something to diplomats. He means something to people who are in the army, obviously. And like we like I'm glad that there's still some people that the nation can stop and be like, yeah, that was like yeah. a life worth remembering. Totally. Talk about the good and the bad. It's OK. You can you can, you can hold a couple thoughts in our minds at one time. Um, OK, let's talk about missiles, Ben, because it's been a big week for missile news. Missiles are they're very hot right now. Uh, if you haven't noticed, so they're back. They're back. They're, yeah, they're, they're back. Missiles are back. So there was an alarming report over the weekend in the Financial Times uh, that China had tested a nuclear capable hypersonic missile that circled the globe before attempting to hit its target. Now, those are some scary sounding words. <laughs> what do they mean? The short answer is that in theory, a hypersonic missile like this could go at five times the speed of sound and evade U.S. missile defense systems, which are designed to intercept standard ballistic missiles that basically go into space and then glide down to their path on sort of a fixed uh, parabolic path. This bad boy is maneuverable, so it would be able to evade any missile defenses, right? Setting that aside. Um, the Chinese foreign ministry said it was not a missile. It was a spaceship. So for what it's worth. <laughs> <laughs> um, then just last trolling. <laughs> just, just trolling. Like, just trolling. Yeah. Like, God, it's a spaceship. Yeah. Then last night, North Korea decided to launch a ballistic missile from a submarine. Uh, sub-launched missiles are particularly provocative because they're harder to detect and track. So... Here's my question for you, Ben. What's the appropriate reaction or level of freak out to both of these tests or reports, especially the sort of adjacent concern that China test driving a missile that could evade all of our missile defenses might lead to another idiotic arms race where we build a bunch of new missile defenses that will soon someday be obsolete with the next thing? I, I like so I saw this and was uh, prematurely annoyed at what <laughs> I knew was coming. Because, like, do you, do you remember, like, when we were in government, especially the first year, the press, the political press, like, 
needs to knee-jerk compare something to what happened before. So whenever anything happened bad, it was Obama's Katrina. Uh-huh. So like the oil spill was Obama's oh, yeah. Katrina or like the 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 those weird people sneaking into a state dinner were Obama's Katrina. Salahis. So you knew that this was going to be Sputnik. You oh, know, because good call, yeah. The press is like, got that's, that's like, is to totally, say. you know, committed to a Cold War with China. And this is, and so I, of course I started to see the Sputnik moment, you know. Um, which is kind of ridiculous given that the Soviet Union had this capacity decades ago. To, to, you know, I mean, look, I, I think missile defense is like useful. If you look at the history of this, the shorter range, like the more this kind of sy- these systems save lives, right? Like we talk about the, the Iron Israeli Dome systems. in Israel. We talked about, you know, like everybody remembers talk, Colin Powell, like the Patriot batteries and mm-hmm. stuff. The, it's ne- Our missile defense has never been able to stop Russia from destroying America with nuclear weapons. And yet we've spent hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of billions of dollars on these systems. China has nuclear weapons. They have missiles. They've got a ton of money. They're going to be able to like destroy enough things with nuclear weapons if there's a nuclear war that I don't think the answer to this is spending like a trillion dollars on missile defense yeah. when Joe Manchin wouldn't even spend $150 billion to try to save the planet from impending climate disaster. Like our spending priorities are nuts. And the fact that this is clearly going to be demagogued and used to justify God knows how much money expended into a missile defense system that won't even work in stopping Chinese and Russian nuclear missiles, but is just part of like some... Washington flex for right-wing and hawkish politicians and a boondoggle for a bunch of defense contractors and is stealing from the money we need to pay for things like child tax credits and climate action is the problem, you know? I'm with you. It's it's just, it's, it's going to be exhausting. It's going to be exhausting. Well, let's talk about the real threat. So uh, unfortunately, you flagged some bad news on, on climate change in, in your answer there. So Joe Manchin has apparently told the White House that he does not support the clean electricity payment program. That's the part of the Biden economic build back better agenda mega bill that would incentivize power companies to switch to clean energy sources and then penalize the utilities that do not. So that really sucks. Then we learned that Chinese President Xi Jinping is too busy launching not missiles, but spaceships because he can't come to the COP26 climate summit in uh, Glasgow, Scotland. So as we talked about briefly last week, she hasn't left China since early 2020. Huge bummer that he's not going to show up at this thing uh, in person. (laughs) One small silver lining here, Ben, uh, is that Australian Prime Minister Scott Morrison is going to attend the climate summit. He made that announcement shortly after friend of the pod, Dan Illich, uh, his crowdfunded poster in Times Square went live yeah. that included a kangaroo hopping around <laughs> while its ass was burning. Yeah. So shout out to Dan yeah. for trolling your prime awesome. minister into going. So I guess been hope springs eternal, right? Like I guess Congress could get its shit together in the next couple of weeks, pass some sort of bill. She could have a change of heart and decide to go. But like, what do you think is worse for the future of the planet? Biden showing up empty handed or she not showing up at all? Both of them are not good signals. Um, and look, it's it's, you covered this well on PSA, but it, it reminded me of in 2009, we went to Copenhagen empty handed because the House had passed a good cap and trade energy bill and it died in the Senate because a bunch of like retrogrades like, you know, Joe Manchin types at the time was like Ben Nelson and yeah. stuff, wouldn't pass that bill. And, and that made it 10 times harder for us to get other countries and twist our arms and get them to make commitments, et cetera, et cetera. So this is a problem. I, I think it is worth, like, from the international piece of what you said very well on Pod Save America, um, what's always been missing from from American climate action, as you know, which is generally limited, 
is often the the piece of the the toolbox that that compels people to stop doing bad things mm-hmm. you know the so, stick yeah the stick so we do the like you know clean energy credits and investments and catalyzing industry but when you try to regulate the hell out of these industries like the right wing courts you know could ultimately strike down yeah. your climate regulations and so obama basically went as far as he could regulatory wise butting up against the right wing courts and then when you try to pass anything through congress that has a stick you know, and and this is thrown back in our face in international climate negotiations because the Europeans are using some sticks, you know, and, and the the idea of taxing carbon is mainstreamed over there, and so there's just a limit in terms of how serious America can be seen, even if we can cobble together a bunch of stuff and say and and rightly say that it adds up to this emissions reduction because it's going to turbocharge the transition to clean energy. There, there's something missing when you're not willing to show that you're going to punish industries that don't make this move. Yeah, because you're terrified that the Koch brothers are going to pump, you know, a couple hundred million dollars into some super PAC to destroy all efforts to regulate their industries. Yeah. And so I think this could be, I mean, and it's not Joe Biden's fault, uh, like, but th- this will be rough, man. Like he's going to go, if he hasn't passed this bill to that, the press will be, They're you know, they'll the be bed. just terrible. They want to write the story that like, his agenda is dying at home and, you know, he has no juice on the world stage because he can't even get Joe Manchin to spend this money. And and none of that is Joe Biden's fault, but it is going to be <laughs> like what shapes this. And Xi Jinping's not even there. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, then everybody's going to be looking at Modi's like, like what's he going to put on the table? And the, the risk that this climate summit just um, undershoots the runway, like from a narrative perspective and a substantive perspective, you know, continues to build. I think they'll, you know, there've been a lot of good commitments, including China's um, in terms of not financing coal. So I, I, people shouldn't lose sight of the forest for the trees here. Like we're making progress with the commitments that are being made by governments and by companies and, you know, by philanthropies. Um, but yeah, th- there is a problem when you don't have the leader of the world's largest emitter in Xi Jinping and you're not sending the president of the United States with a uh, as strong a climate bill as you should have. So frustrating. It's so frustrating. Just so frustrating. And this is not none of this is the Biden team's fault because they want to be doing they want to have the right ambition here. It's yeah. just Joe Manchin being like a stubborn, you know, whatever. Thanks, Joe. Pod Save the World is brought to you by the UN Refugee Agency. The UN Refugee Agency, or UNHCR, responds to emergencies and provides long-term solutions for refugees. They provide aid in over 130 countries, including Ukraine, Syria, Afghanistan, and Sudan, where people are forced to flee from war and persecution at their greatest moment of need. UNHCR helps and protects refugees by providing food, shelter, medical care, and other life-saving essentials. The agency jumpstarts relief in three key ways. They transport core relief items stored in even the most remote areas of the world. They deploy expert emergency staff trained to help in crisis situations, and they transfer funds directly to support the emergency. Because of generous supporters and donors, UNHCR can scale up its response within 72 hours of a large-scale emergency. Your support helps provide life-saving aid for refugees whenever and wherever emergencies occur. Donate to USA for UNHCR by visiting unrefugees.org slash donation. That's unrefugees.org slash donation. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. What's the first thing you do if you had an extra hour in your day? Oh man, what would I do? Sleep would be nice. Yeah, yeah. Hang out with my daughter. I don't know. Take a nap, read a book. No, I wouldn't do a book. I, I, listen, I wish I would pick a book. 
Yeah, but uh, listen, we all wish we had another hour in a day. A lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. The question is time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? Whoa. My therapist is trying to get me to be still for five minutes a day. So much harder than it sounds. Yeah. Oh, yeah? There's too many videos to see. There will be a podcast in my ear. The best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what's important to you to make it a priority. Therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it. If you're thinking of giving therapy a try, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash crookedworld. Go today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash crookedworld. Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home. Okay, so, little good news. Uh, listeners of this show know that we are not big fans of Viktor Orban, the far-right autocratic prime minister of Hungary. But it looks like he might have some pretty formidable uh, opposition this time around. Ben, what do we know about this guy, Peter Marquise, and whether he's a real threat to Orban or why he's a threat to Orban and the Fidesz party? So what's what's so interesting about this and why I think it's, it's good that we're highlighting it is, first of all, the strategy of the opposition was really smart here. They have multiple opposition parties from like a an established socialist party to the younger, up, you know, momentum party that I profile in my book um, to this guy. He's like a pretty conservative mayor, um, pretty small town mayor, small town mayor, Catholic. former Fidesz Orban party guy who basically broke and said, you know, kind of a never Orbaner, you know, <laughs> and nice. what they said is like, we're going to have one primary. So we run one candidate to be the opponent of Viktor Orban in kind of one list so that we maximize our chance of beating him. The reason why that's important is because in the past, Orban would run against all these parties, divide them against each other. His party would only get like about half the votes, but they dominate because, you know, he didn't have a unified opposition. So the primary allowed them to both motivate people and get people more engaged in their democracy, to have this kind of open competition for who would be the best person to run against Orban. And essentially, then what ended up happening is they'd already made this pragmatic decision to unify a bunch of different parties that run an ideological gambit. And then at the end, people may remember the the kind of progressive mayor of Budapest that we had on. Mm -hmm. They had a first round of this primary in which that guy got more votes than the person who ended up being the, the candidate. He dropped out before the final round because he calculated you know what, this guy's got a better shot of winning than I do or the woman who runs the Socialist Party does because she is married to the former prime minister who's like, you know, kind of the Clinton family type, you know, like easier to demagogue for Orban. And so it was just this pragmatic decision of saying like, hey, you know what, this guy isn't everything we'd hope. He's certainly not some big progressive, but, you know, he's saying the right things about any corruption. He's saying the right things about democracy. And job one is to get Orban out. And they gave themselves the best shot to do that. I don't blame Ralph Nader or Jill Stein for all our problems. But imagine if those fucking idiots had not said things like Al Gore and George W. Bush are exactly the, are the same. same. Yeah. Well, and that's the thing is, is what they're, the, the lesson here, because people always ask me after my book, like, what's what a lesson? One of the lessons is when you're in an existential threat to your democracy, 
everybody who's for democracy has to just put one big tent over yeah. every party and movement and say, hey, you know, we'll de- debate things, we'll fight it out, but come election time, we're all just going to decide to vote for the same person. Yeah. Navalny tried to do that with smart voting in Russia too, and that's why Putin was so threatened by that that he, you know, leaned on Apple to cancel the app. Yeah, and credit to the Democratic Party, I think, in 2020 for actually doing that. Doing right? that. You know, like you had yeah. Bernie to, you know, conservative never-Trumpers. Uh, it is also just notable and a good reminder that since uh, May of 2012, Viktor Orban's government has spent more than $4.5 million on lobbyists. Uh, Mike Pence was recently in Hungary for an Orban-sponsored conference. Jeff Sessions apparently went to, although, do you think anyone noticed him, that little elf running around? Um, CPAC is going to be there next year. Yeah, they're, yeah. they're planning their Hungarian own version CPAC. of yeah. <laughs> Hungarian CPAC in Budapest. Uh, Tucker Carlson anchored a show there for Please, a Please, Sasha Baron Cohen, can we get a Borat Ooh. appearance at the Hungarian CPAC? That's not yeah. a bad idea, Sasha. I hope you're listening. So anyway, one uh, very important election that we will continue to cover here. Okay, let's talk about Haiti because there was some scary news out of Haiti over the weekend where a gang kidnapped 16 Americans and one Canadian citizen who were visiting an orphanage while traveling with the U.S.-based Christian aid group. Five of the victims are children, Ben, uh, ranging in age from eight months to 15 years. So that's pretty horrifying. The Wall Street Journal reported that this gang is demanding a $17 million ransom, so a million dollars per captive. Gangs control many parts of Haiti. The security situation was bad before the president was assassinated several months ago. It's gotten far worse since. Uh, An organization called the Center for Analysis and Research for Human Rights said that this year alone in Haiti, 628 people were reported kidnapped, and that's reported. The FBI is on the ground now working on the case. The State Department's talking to whoever they can talk to and the government. Biden is getting briefed every day. So, you know, Ben, there's like two parts to this. One, you know, the, the situation for people in Haiti is just horrible and and terrifying and the security situation is awful. And the other piece of this is just like the Biden led effort now to get these Americans back and this Canadian citizen back. And I was just thinking about how brutally difficult that must be because you're trying to work with a government partner that is like barely functional. You're going to have to navigate these ransom demands and then the sort of demagoguing of People who say, no, we should never pay ransoms under any, you know, scenario. You know, Jason Rezaian talks a lot about the policy around this in 544 days and how complicated this is. But I imagine like this is the kind of situation and thing that can all of a sudden take dozens of hours a week for the National Security Council. You know, it's like all consuming. Yeah. And you want, you know, like how far a uh, spectrum of options you're looking at. Like, yeah. are there military? It's like a Delta you know, Force raid. Yeah, yeah. You know, or... Um, yeah, to ransom adjacent kind of, uh, you know, because uh, some of these families, do, you know, like, because it's both the question, the U.S. government's not going to pay the ransom, but do you punish people right. who might choose to do it on their own? I mean, like, th- these are the most difficult issues because you know, whenever you're dealing with people who have been taken prisoner or hostage, like, you, there's so little you control, you know, like, it's usually in a place where you don't have a governmental partner. In this case, it's not because it's an adversary. It's because there's not really a government. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and and you just have to explore every option. And what you usually have to test is are, do, who do we know who may know someone who knows these gangs? Like you try to find any line in um, to someone who might have influence over the people holding those people and to leverage that. And that, you know, that can lead you down roads to people that are like fixers and, you know, not the most pleasant characters, yeah, right? Cr- real criminals. And I think, and then the big, stepping back, the bigger issue is like the, the gangs control Port-au-Prince, you know, like there, there needs to be some wholesale look at like the Haitian security and policing c- circumstance that is not 
the U.S. military going down there, but is is rather like how in the past we we've tried to help them build up a police capacity, and then what it, it builds up and then it always collapses, and you know. But I, I, you just need some policy informed by Haitian voices to look at what are the policing needs here that allow you to tip the balance, because what ends up happening is like if you're a policeman in Haiti and you're making X amount of money and then the gangs are paying Y amount of money, like it becomes a simple mm-hmm. math equation in yeah. a lot of cases. Yeah, it is a really, really brutally difficult situation. So we're just hope for everyone's sake that yeah. they get them back. Um, ben, so Jeff Feltman, someone we know well, worked with uh, back in the day, he's the US envoy for the Horn of Africa, is visiting Khartoum this week. He's heading to Sudan because the prime minister called the situation there currently the worst and most dangerous crisis uh, that the country has seen for its nascent, you know, fragile transition to democracy. Uh, Axios had a good piece uh, on the broader political situation. So listeners might remember that Omar al-Bashir, who is the war criminal slash former president of Sudan, he was deposed in a coup in 2019. A joint military-civilian council has been in power ever since. They have been given the task of leading a transition to democracy and and free elections by the end of 2023. But that transition has been complicated by more democracy, by major protests. Uh, Some protesters are calling for a return to military rule. Others want the transitional government to just fully hand things over to civilians right now. There's fear that this civilian-military alliance that led to Bashir's ouster will just kind of crumble and unravel. There was a failed coup attempt uh, in late September. So the Biden administration, uh, Tony Blinken specifically, has spoken out in support of the civilian leadership and the democratic transition. But there's this, you know, sort of geopolitical wrestling happening where countries like Egypt, Saudi Arabia, and UAE have closer ties with the military. And there's a question of whether they're going to throw their support towards the guys we don't like. So I'm positive that I oversimplified this. Uh, but it sounds like an incredibly you know tense moment for Sudan and their in their democratic transition. Yeah, look, I, I think this was always it was a long transition plan. We talked about this way back when it was agreed to. I know. You know? Um, <laughs> Mind and, you, we've been doing this for a while. Yeah, yeah. Like, but the the you got to stick to the plan. Like, I'm you know I, th- I think they're like because once you start deviating from like an agreed upon meticulously negotiated civilian military transition leading to an election, once you're off. The course, like then, all bets are off, and everybody's try grabs mm-hmm. for power, you know. And, and in terms of like what we can do beyond like diplomacy and our voice and the rest of it, is the Saudis, the Emiratis, and the Egyptians, like don't want to see democratic transition succeed. You know, the same thing happened in Egypt, right, mm-hmm. where you had street protests that removed a dictator that had been there too long, and you were going to have uh, transition to elections. That time, the transition to the elections happened fast, and so then the Saudis and Emiratis just funded a coup, including paying for people to protest in the streets, by the way. Um, and, and so the idea that they would run the exact same play in Sudan was always something lurking in the backdrop, that they might just, hey, tell the military at some point, wait for the right moment, uh, to where you can put yourself forward as the representative of the mm-hmm. people and take back power. That's what CC did. In the name of stability or whatever. Yeah. And so if I'm the Biden team, like that's where I'm focusing some of my efforts. Like just get in line here. Like don't, don't at least don't be a spoiler um, and try to support the, the the program here that results in an election, by the way, that you have to accept the, the, the results of. And look, if we're going to continue, I mean, the amount of love uh, showered on the Emiratis, like um, I, I, you know, like I just foreign I know. policy, I know. I U.S. Know. foreign policy, Twitter, like you would think we have no closer partner in the world today than the mm-hmm. UAE. Um, I'm just gonna be blunt about it. Um, 
like I, I know some of that is because of the evacuations from Afghanistan they help with, but like maybe they could not like support a military takeover in a country that doesn't want to have that, you know? Um, like we got to be getting something like, otherwise why are we constantly lauding <laughs> these, uh, uh, the, these, the, the autocratic, you know, junior partner of the Saudi Saudis? Like I just don't... Um, yeah, I noticed that too. Yeah, there's a lot of that. You know what I'm saying? You, yeah, yeah. You know what I'm yeah, yeah, a lot of yeah, uh, yeah. a lot of a lot of fancy dinners in Georgetown. There's a lot of dinners. Uh, here's a story that broke just before we started recording um, about another shitty autocrat. So uh, this is the New York Times. Uh, they reported that a Brazilian congressional panel is going to recommend mass homicide charges against President Jair Bolsonaro, uh, saying that he intentionally let the coronavirus tear through the country and kill hundreds of thousands of people in a failed bid to achieve herd immunity and revive his economy. Um, this report apparently recommends criminal charges against 70 people, including Bolsonaro, senior members of the government, and three of his sons. The Brazilian senator, who is the lead author of the report, told The Times, quote, I am personally convinced that he is responsible for escalating the slaughter, end quote. There's a bunch more charges made. The attorney general now has about a month to decide whether to pursue charges. It'll go into the Congress if he does. All of this seems highly unlikely, but oof, tough, tough news day for Bolsonaro. Here. <laughs> I mean, here's the thing: like, you know, Brazil's had backs and forth where you basically like you end up fighting your political opponents, you know, um, usually through corruption charges, not mm -hmm. murder. Um, Bolsonaro is like a big enough asshole that I wouldn't be shocked if he literally like said out loud or like even wrote an email like. Let's let people die herd so we get the economy going yeah. and have herd immunity. Like that's, and like there's a part of me that's kind of like Trump kind of flirted with it. Well, and there's a part of me that's kind of like you know what people on the left should be trying different shit. You know, like like Dan Illich, like taking out you know billboards with like kangaroos with their ass on fire is one way of doing it, and, and charging Bolsonaro with murders another way. And maybe the that kangaroo billboards is like a better, more sustainable approach. Different strokes you know? for different folks yeah, is yeah. what you're saying. Yeah. I mean, so I, I don't like I, I, you know, the particularities of uh, the case I can't speak to. Um, and and it, it's probably not the, the, the most stabilizing way to mm -hmm. take Bolsonaro out. The best way is to just beat him at the polls and, yep. and hold the center when he tries to overthrow the election. Um, but people out there are thinking, you know, like, yeah. uh, got our trying different stuff. The Hungarians are having a primary. Dan's got his billboards. The Brazilians are like charging people with murder, you know? <laughs> charging their leaders <laughs> with the, the death of 300,000 people. Yeah yeah. 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 Hey, you know, whatever works. Seems a little over the top. I Listen, mean, I, I'm going to give you that. Like, it seems a little over the top. Good. Cause like, also like, where do you, what, what makes someone culpable for that? You I know, don't know. It's a hard thing to establish. Yeah, just rub a little ivermectin on it and it'll all be yeah. better. Uh, all right, enough of the serious stuff, Ben. I'm going to need you to put on your Pod Save the World royal correspondent hat for just a moment, please, um, because there was a report in Vanity Fair. Let it be known that Ben is switching hats. There we go. Uh, this report in Vanity Fair said that the Queen of England has been advised to give up her evening martini as she prepares for her busy fall schedule. She reportedly enjoys a drink most evenings. Her go-to is a dry martini. At dinner, she likes sweet wine. Uh, the piece quotes her late cousin saying that the queen had been known to drink a glass of champagne before bed. Uh, apparently, it was once reported that she drank four alcoholic beverages per day. Here's my question, Ben. Did you know that the queen went this hard? Yeah. I, there's no way I could drink I mean, I, I mean, four I, I drinks a day, and I'm not 95. Completely aware that the queen went this hard. That's... Um, and actually, Obama used to say like he, the, the lunches with them, like he went up to lunch with them at one of their, you know, I think it was at Windsor Palace. 
And like Philip's just crushing beers at the lunch, you know, like it's uh, they're fun people to hang out with. Um, I hate this. I'm totally against this. If if it's worked for the woman for like yeah. 90 plus fucking years, including like, you know, like however many is queen, like why mess with it now? You know, like I just like a dry martini feels like what the queen should be having every afternoon. I'm not a doctor, not but either. like, I mean, watching this from afar, it seems like that's worked for her. Like, yeah, no, no, most people don't live to 95. So she's already That's kind what of I'm saying. It's like gravy. She's been playing with house money for a while. Like give the woman her corgis and her martinis and her movies as we talked about. Do you think that if you're slamming drinks with the queen at Buckingham Palace that they just like run down to the basement and dust off like a 1962 like Chateau Neuf de Pop de Rothschild, some other fancy thing. So that's why Obama told me the story because he was so impressed that Phillips is like, I'm just going to crack a beer. These guys could have the Chateau de Bop. You know? Yeah, yeah. And instead he's like, you know, just like pop top, you know. Or really? like, I, I think they had like sherry too, which is so British. Like, oh, who drinks God, sherry? Like, sherry. Uh, but, um, but yeah, the Queen should be able to have her martini. Come on. Yeah, I, look, if you're listening, Your Majesty. I mean, she could shift edibles. I mean, that's another way. <laughs> yeah. I just love the idea of yeah. like a little glass of champagne before bed. You know, like yeah, a little nightcap, you know? slamming it in the um, in yeah. bed. Uh, I'm into it. Um, the other uh, thing we try to do here, besides keep a tab on the royals, is is keep tabs. Oh, on... one other thing on this, please. By the way, royal correspondent, the queen mum, right? The qu- what? queen, the queen's mother. Okay, you know, uh, played ably by Helena Bonham Carter in in the movie uh, The King's Speech. Um, she used to drink like a like and, and people can at me if I'm wrong, but like I think she drank like a bottle of gin a day, like no fucking what? fucking around, yeah. And she lived to be like a hundred, right? So these people have, they've got like the genes for this stuff. Yeah, and 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 we know that those gene pools don't mix very often. Yeah, you know. <laughs> well, that's, yeah, maybe there's something to that. Yeah, <laughs> something yeah. to that. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so again, like there, uh, the other person we keep tabs on here is Ted Cruz. Because there's just so many people who hate him in America and around the world. You know, he's talking to far-right nationalists in Spain. This week, he has pissed off the good people of Australia. Uh, So here's a backstory, Ben. Cruz went on Twitter to declare that Australia's Northern Territory, uh, that their COVID vaccine mandate was tyranny and disgraceful and sad. Those are the words he used. The region's chief minister, a guy named Michael Gunner, responded with a barrage of statistics about how much better his territory has fared from COVID than Texas. The one stat that tells the entire story is 70,000 COVID deaths in Texas, zero in the Northern Territory. There you go. Uh, Gunner said, quote, we don't need your lectures. Thanks, mate. You know nothing about <laughs> us. And if you stand against the life-saving vaccine, then you sure as hell don't stand with Australia. I love Texas. Go Longhorns. But when it comes to COVID, I'm glad we are nothing like you. So Ben... <laughs> It's been a tough couple of years. You know, I think like yeah. we, I've never felt quite as isolated as I do from the rest of the world. But it's just so nice to know yeah. that Ted Cruz can bring us together to call him a douchebag. Is, yeah, that was my reaction. I mean, for, for, and Gunner points out, by the way, that they also, their kids are in school. Like they, 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 they're returning. They one lockdown for yeah. 18 days. They're not locking down because they've like fucking handled their business, unlike Ted Cruz in Texas. It's a tough time that we live through. And- you know, a lot of the political news can be upsetting uh, every day. It can be difficult to open Twitter. You look around the world and there's so much division and divisiveness. There's like a new Cold War brewing with China. And the fact that there's this thing where billions of people around the world want Ted Cruz to go fuck off, 
it, it's a hopeful thing. Yeah, yeah. It's really something that makes me feel gives me strength. Makes me feel seen uh, and present as a human. It makes me feel dignity. Yeah. Um, so every time someone around the world is able to throw a ferocious dunk on Ted Cruz, um, like I'm, I, like I just feel a little less alone. And <laughs> and, and and I like that we always seem to be circling back to Australia uh-huh. um, when there's some something like this. Like just like every now and then they pop up, they call take it a out massive us. whack, call it like it is, including to their like climate denying prime minister. And like you know, it's good to know that we got Aussies out there like that. Love the Aussies. Yeah. Hope you enjoy those nuclear subs. You guys earned them. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Well, the French got Steve Clemens, uh, <laughs> yeah. Legion d'honneur, so yeah, yeah, yeah. even trade, right? Oui, oui, oui. Yeah. Uh, okay, last uh, last story is out of New Zealand, uh, their neighbor, the Aussie's neighbor. So this is a little bit of sad news, Ben. Uh, the official wizard of Christchurch, New Zealand was fired. He let Wait, go. Wait, stop. I got a question already. Yeah. There's an official wizard? Official wizard of Christchurch, New Zealand. He was on the job for 23 years. Uh, this is according to a New Zealand-based news outlet called Stuff. It's like stuff.co.nz. Yeah, yeah. This guy's name is Jack Backenbury. Uh, his contract called for him to, quote, provide acts of wizardry and other <laughs> wizard-like services <laughs> as part of promotional work for the city of Christchurch. Uh, Wizard Jack had been making a cool 16 grand a year, uh, which is, I've, I've my sources told me that's a pretty good rate in the wizarding community. Yeah. Um, fired or not, Jack says he's going to keep showing up at the Christchurch Arts Center and talking with tourists. He's sort of a tourist attraction. He said, quote, they will have to kill me to stop me. I don't like being canceled. <laughs> um, <laughs> Why'd they can- shake in the wizard? I think that, I don't know, maybe just didn't seem like the path they wanted to go tourism-wise. So he, he's sort of a, a, an interesting duck. Uh, according to this another article in Stuff from 2013, this guy first showed up in Christchurch, and he thinks of himself as living performance art. And so this in the mid-70s, he first got attention because he- Did he, he go to wizard school, though, like Harry Potter? Or? In, unclear. Yeah, unclear yeah, what yeah. his pedigree is. Yeah. But he, he in the mid-70s, he publicly cast a spell uh, to, quote, bind <laughs> the bowels of an officious <laughs> assistant town clerk. <laughs> Well, that, yeah. <laughs> and the guy had to do a, a news conference to clarify that things were just kind of moving okay, that he wasn't I uh, mean, wasn't bottled up. We could kind of merge these stories because uh, casting a spell on Ted Cruz that oh, would yeah. lead him to not be able to have a bowel movement could be an interesting. Uh, he's already yeah. given off real constipated yeah, yeah, vibes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, um, apparently, another city council member had to publicly testify that his head. Uh, had not shrunk after the wizard announced <laughs> a spell to shrink it. He used to do big public debates with someone just referred to as the Bible lady. Uh, he refused to get a uh, driver's license, passport, or social security number. <laughs> the wizard wrote a manifesto called uh, Mein Kopf. <laughs> All right, wait, but now the, now the, the, the wizard's getting a little problematic. I went to the yeah, wizard's yeah, website. Yeah. This is it here. He's like a MAGA wizard? Uh, no, it's uh, he's just a fucking weirdo. Uh, he's got a bunch of podcasts. Right, so, so people can't see, but the website has like that kind of scroll color to it, like a yeah. yellowish uh, tint with like the wizardish handwriting and a very good beard. Yeah. And you, um, you, you all can... required for wizards. So if you want to listen to his podcast, you have to <laughs> you have to click on some like weird Dropbox, and I just wasn't uh, I wasn't well, down yeah, with that. No, 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 like yeah. don't, don't give uh, yeah, the wizard an entry point. He's got know? some Pegasus yeah, yeah, vibes. Yeah, suddenly, you won't be have a bowel movement. I, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> wizard, if you're listening, it would be. Could you do a spell on Ted Cruz? I like we could solve a lot of problems with the good wizard here. I'm just saying. So if he has the goods and he's out of work. 
there's plenty of spells that we could use over here. I mean, I will say, like, the, uh, like I want to spend more time in New Zealand. I've like, never been. I was there once, and it is the kind of place where you might come upon a wizard. You know, like you're you're like rolling green hills and yeah. like ancient landscapes and kiwis. Like at night, mm-hmm. we went out and found those kiwi birds and stuff. Like. I mean, uh, they should own it. They should just kind of go with the wizards. Don't they film all those like elfin movies there, the like Lord well, of the Rings? Although and Peter stuff. Jackson, like, oh, Peter yeah, Jackson. So stuff. Peter Jackson is a Kiwi, and like he he built like the, all the sets were on like his land. Like he owns like this land, I think, where they made all the Lord of the Rings movies. So there's, there's a lot of wizardry, you know, yeah, that's I, taken place on those shores. I wondered if they were tied together, this wizard and. The, those movies, but it sounds like he just came out of some sort of like countercultural revolution in the '60s in Australia. So they, yeah, I mean, I look, there was like weird stuff going on in the '60s here in Australia, New Zealand. Like, golly knows, um, I, there is a huge tourism. Like, there was a Lord of the Rings kind of tourism boom. Oh, I can see that. Um, wh- when I was there, I, I was at this dinner with Peter Jackson, and he was talking like that. You could, I think, you could go and see like where the, you know, some of the movies were and like pilgrimages were made um i mean these were like i liked those movies but i kind of saw them once and yeah think about them again they're on cable and you're like i watched 20 minutes of this they're like deeply important to some people yeah oh yeah yeah yeah. yeah. um so i'd say own it just stick with the wizard thing maybe make another lord of the rings movie maybe you need another trilogy to bring it back you know yeah or just switch them into the harry potter mode you know Make yeah. him make him the new uh, I don't know, yeah. some sort of muggle hating you know bad guy. I went to Harry Potter World once with uh, Hannah, my wife, uh, and uh, and two friends, and it took like hours to get there. The, cl- the lines were just ungodly awful. There's one cool ride. We went on it. Everyone but me got super seasick from all the motion, and then we had to leave. And then we then we forgot where we parked our car. It was I, a nightmare. Yeah, I mean it's funny that you like you can like people can. Um, be condescending about this, right? When you'd see the people at like the Harry Potter movie openings and they're like wearing like, you know, hats and face paint. And shit I've read like all that. those books. They're great. But here's the thing about it. Like if you think of the more commonly accepted forms of behavior, what's weirder, right? Going to like a movie dressed as like a character in the movie mm-hmm. or like what you and I did in college, going to a parking lot like shotgunning like 17 beers, <laughs> vomiting on yourself, yeah. and then watching a college football game. I mean, hey, man, like it's different, all- yeah. like, Again, it's different strokes. Like people can do whatever the fuck they want. Totally. And so if this guy wants to be a wizard, like why not? You know? I thought you were going to say what's weirder, um, you know, going to like Harry Potter world and dressing up like a wizard or like going to an Obama or a Trump rally and getting yeah. there five hours early and standing in the freezing cold to hear a political speech. Well, to me, no, that's no. kind of crazy. The, what's crazier is like, you, I know, because I know you've had to do this too. I did it once, the Politicon thing. Awful. Um, <laughs> that's I've weird. I've never felt worse about myself. <laughs> People were like freaking out because they saw like some some pundit, you know, like, like some some asshole like us, you know, like, oh my God, over there, look, it's, you know, Howard Feynman. You know, uh, like, I, I was in a green room and, and uh, Tommy Laren walked in with a camera crew following her and I was like, I fucking hate myself yeah, for being I, here. I can't do this. Yeah, yeah. I can't do this. Um, whoa, I, I forgot to mention Barack Obama is going to uh, Glasgow yeah. for this for this yeah. climate conference. I, I will you be. You're gonna hitch a ride. I'm hitching a ride. I will be at an international summit. What are you guys gonna time. do? 
we're gonna hang out. Like no pressure on us, right? You know, like, <laughs> like, 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 like. That's so sweet. Yeah, yeah, Going to like a G twenty yeah, with no role. Yeah, you see like Lammy, you know, like oh, I, that's you know, cool. I, no, I, I mean, I think he'll, you know, he'll give a speech and he'll meet with young activists and young people working in climate. I mean, that's the main thing. I think he wants to kind of be this person who can both like speak to leaders and and speak to like where we are in the climate fight, but also try to like you know. Um, be able to speak to younger people, encourage them to keep putting pressure on the leaders. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it'll be very interesting. You know, in the Trump years, it wasn't really an option <laughs> you know, for uh, right, yeah. Obama to show up at an international summit, right? Um, but this one, it's like it's also like it's an all hands on deck thing, right? Everybody should go. You know, like anybody with like a platform on this kind of stuff um, should go. And I think it's you know this is the first kind of summit like this that Obama's gone to since he was president. And I think that's a sign that he feels a lot of, you know, pride in Paris. And this is obviously like the update to that. But also like that this is an issue he's going to be involved in going forward. Which yeah. we all should be. He's got kids. He'll have grandkids hey, someday. Yeah, you know, yeah. we're, all, we're all pretty nervous about this yeah, stuff. Thanks, Joe Manchin. Thanks, Joe Manchin. Uh, hopefully they'll get something done. Oh, there's all these weird reports they'll that get are coming in yeah, here. Yeah, yeah. Whatever. It'll be know. like not what needs to get done, but it'll be much better than where things were. And you just got to keep pushing. Keep fighting. Uh, Okay, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll have my interview with Maria Ressa, who is the recent recipient of the Nobel Peace Prize. No big deal. Stick around for that. Did you know that women make up 56% of law students? That's grounds for bragging rights at a dinner table for your conservative uncle who still thinks women belong in the kitchen. It's clear that the future of the legal field is female. So why are so many legal podcasts and reviews authored by men? Hi, I'm Leah Littman. I'm Kate Shaw. And with Melissa Murray, we are the hosts of Strict Scrutiny. Each week, we break down the latest headlines and biggest legal questions facing our country through the lens of diverse voices to give you expert views you won't hear anywhere else. Strict Scrutiny is your guide to the Supreme Court. New episodes drop every Monday, plus bonuses whenever the Supreme Court takes away another one of our rights. Make sure to subscribe to Strict Scrutiny wherever you get your podcasts. Reclaim your time now that you can listen to four weekly ads-free episodes across Pod Save America and Pod Save the World. There's never been a better time to join Cricket's Friend of the Pod subscription community. The marketing people say that listening ads-free saves you up to two hours of ad listening each month. Imagine the possibilities. You know what you can do with two extra hours a week? You can listen, listen to, to two, more podcasts. Exactly. Ah, two more episodes. That's yeah. two more episodes. Yeah. Get more stuff in your brain. Yeah. Get more stuff in that more brain. More stuff and content in there like, yeah, uh, like you're a foie gras. <laughs> Become a member today. Go to cricket.com slash friends now to learn more. It's 2024. We're facing another presidential election with huge stakes. You want to help. You don't know where your money will actually make a difference or how to figure that out. Ensure you love to take an edible and not think about it, but you can't because you do care. Let Vote Save America make it easy for you with their new anxiety relief program. Here's how it works. You set up a monthly recurring donation at the level that feels right for you, and Vote Save America will send 100% of it to the grassroots organizations and down-ballot races that need it most. Then, at the end of the month, they'll tell you where your dollars went. That's it. Set it and forget it. Vote Save America has already raised $52,000 in monthly recurring donations. Love it. That's great. From over 1,000 amazing, sustaining donors who've signed up and trusted Vote Save America to make their dollar go further. But we still have a long way to go, and Vote Save America needs your help to get there. Sign up at votesaveamerica.com. Enjoy your edible. <laughs> Legal disclaimer, paid for by Vote Save America, votesaveamerica.com, not authorized by any candidate or candidate's committee. 
I am so excited to invite our next guest onto the show. Maria Ressa is a journalist. She's the co-founder of Rappler, which is a fantastic digital media company in the Philippines. And she, along with a Russian journalist named Dmitry Muratov, were the recent recipients of the Nobel Peace Prize. Maria, thank you so much for joining the show and congratulations. Thank you. And thanks for having me. Uh, quick question to start before we get serious. How does one celebrate winning the Nobel Peace Prize? You know, you don't really celebrate. I just feel like it's already been an intense whirlwind the last the last five years, you know, just trying to do our jobs on digital, which, you know, it doesn't stop. And then when it happened, everything exploded on my on my laptop. I you know, it's what a long answer, except to say um I don't know if I've celebrated. I think I'm still stunned, but I have my inbox, which I used to call Narnia, is now Narnia <laughs> times, you know, a hundred. And I am I'm trying to focus this bright light that the Nobel Committee gave us to the countries that I mean, there are countries that are even worse than the Philippines on the World Press Freedom index. Um, and so, you know, talking to editors in Venezuela, for example, mm. talking to journalists in India, in Pakistan, in, I mean, it's, it's also been an education the last week. Oh, short answer. I don't know what celebrating means either. <laughs> it's a good, look, you're just, your, your commitment to the cause, uh, you know, transcends every single day. So well, let's get to the mission. So basic question to start for, for listeners, uh, to the show who might not know about Rappler. Why did you start it? Why was it so necessary in the Philippines? Um, I So I, I spent almost two decades with CNN. I started the Manila Bureau and then the Jakarta Bureau. And after doing breaking news, I decided when I turned 40, I was going to choose home. So I came home to the Philippines and headed, I left CNN and then headed the largest news organization, which lost its franchise to operate, right? last year. That's part of the intimidation tactics of this administration. I suppose that's not intimidation, that's real action. Mm -hmm. After, while I was with, with ABS-CBN, the largest network, I realized that traditional news, traditional journalists don't didn't quite get how pivotal and how transformative technology was going to be. And it's hard. it was harder to Turn to, to change a legacy news organization along with its processes and mindset and culture than it was to start from scratch. So we created Rappler because we embrace the technology, you know, and um, this is the sixth year in a row that Filipinos have spent the most time online and on social media globally. So we really are a, a little ahead of the pack. So I hope what happened to us doesn't go all the way to you. <laughs> Yeah, me too. Um, you know, one of the things you've done just incredible coverage of is uh, President Duterte's so-called uh, war on drugs. That really has been a, a war on innocent civilians. I mean, there's estimates of tens of thousands of innocent being, pe people being killed in the name of uh, preventing the, the sale or use of drugs. There have been so many deaths that the UN Human Rights Council, I believe, voted to launch an investigation into the drug war. Can you describe that drug war uh, for listeners and why it was so important for you to, to really dig into that in your coverage? Yeah, I think there are three points there. You know, the first is that it is part of President Duterte's leadership style. You know, he uses, and in his words, he says it's violence and fear. <clears throat> I asked him about that again. He believes it's important 
to use fear to govern Filipinos. Mm. And he has been in power in the southern city of Davao since 1988. So this is part of his psyche. The second thing is, you know, this tokhang is what he called this drug war. It Tokhang means, means knock. So literally, when he was in this town in the southern Philippines, police would knock at your door. And, you know, that is both an intimidation tactic as much as it can be a law and order tactic, right? But you don't mm-hmm. know why someone will knock at your door. And then finally, I guess the last part was just a shock. Hours after he took his oath of office in 2016, uh, the first death, you know, the first body was dumped on the sidewalk. And the months of July, August, September, we had one team assigned on overnights and they would come home with videos of at least eight dead bodies a night. You know, there's one body was dumped in front of a school. You know, and it would be like gargoyleish, like Batman and Robin type. Gotham City would have a, a a cardboard thing saying "Don't be a drug pusher," and the and the body would be gagged and and masked, right? So, yeah, so it was horrific. We knew something bad was happening, and at the beginning, the police would announce all the drug deaths. So we watched the drug deaths rise. So, up. In January 2017, the police had already said there were 7,000 people killed. And then they realized that when they announced that, that it works against them. And so in plain view, they just rolled back the number to 2,000 plus, 7,000 plus, 2,000 plus by creating another. It's like atomizing to meaninglessness. And, you know, it is what we did in Rappler is to try to make these numbers real and that was what we did in our impunity series yeah well again i guess no surprise that a leader who would lie with such impunity would not be thrilled by uh your coverage um i noticed that he congratulated you however on on winning the Nobel peace prize he called it a victory for a filipina um I don't know. In the past, he's called you fake news. In the past, he said you were part of a, you know, I guess a CIA operation. What do you make of this apology? Is it a bit of a concession that uh, that you've, you know, had an enormous impact or how did you read it? It wasn't really an apology. It was the presidential spokesman, Harry Rocket, um, who, who congratulated me. And then in the next breath, then said that, this is evidence that press freedom is alive in the Philippines. Uh, um, so it's kind of like, you know, okay, take credit, go for it, right? And then the second, and then the next, the succeeding statements were all about the cases that the government has filed against me. And a repeated lie is that the case that I was convicted, a, co- a former colleague and I were convicted on cyber libel last year, was actually filed by a private individual. It's a, it's a half-truth. Right. But what the government has always said is it's a private individual. It's not us. But, well, a criminal case requires the Department of Justice to advocate for a criminal, you know, uh, a jail time. And it also used state prosecutors to do it. So uh, mm. let me not dive into that. But, you know, it is what it is. It's the air we breathe, you know, similar to you, disinformation and these these types of manipulative tactics on social media creates the enabling environment for the weaponization of the law. And that has happened in many countries around the world. Yeah. I mean, sort of core to creating that environment has been the use of social media, has been the use of Facebook. You've been talking about this, leading on this for a very long time. And you recently said that 
Facebook is biased against facts. It is biased against journalism. Uh, we have our own set of enormous frustrations with Facebook here in the U.S., or, or at least some of us do. But can, can you talk a little bit for listeners about what the impact of Facebook has been on the discourse and the politics in the Philippines? I would say it's in the Philippines and all around the world. And the reason I say it with such certainty is that we have the data. We began to be alarmed in 2016. Rappler was formed first on Facebook, right? If Facebook had better search, I may not have launched the website itself because that's how much I believed in Facebook. And I, you know, it is transformative. Social media and the technology is transformative, but I think it crossed the line around 2014, 2015, 2014 in the Ukraine, 2015 was when instant articles, all news organizations were brought in without any algorithmic change, right? So all of a sudden, Facts were being compared to what you had, you know, the joke you heard or what you had for dinner or a little lie that you heard that you may not have fact checked and that made you angry. And so you put it in and it spread like wildfire. Um, this is what the research has shown us. And this this is research outside of the Philippines that lies laced with anger and hate spread faster and further than facts. So I looked at our ecosystem here. We started, um, we called it the Shark Tank because initially it was really uh, something we put together to look at disinformation networks and they were inevitably connected to the state as early as 2016. State fueled and then the main content creators then were given government positions after the election of Duterte. Hmm. Um, so, so what we saw is that the end goal, there, there are several al algorithmic choices because I feel like the world, America in particular, was lost in this debate over content moderation. That's like a distraction because it's not about content. It is about the choices of algorithmic distribution and amplification. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of what we showed. And I'm really glad to see after our latest whistleblower, you know, bipartisan uh, uh, a kind of cooperation. And now finally, we're talking about what we should have been talking about five years ago. Yeah, totally agree with you. I mean, and it's also, you know, it, it's quite clear that Facebook is extremely interested in gaining market share abroad. They seem uh, much less interested in the impact the platform might have in other countries in moderating content uh, and supporting the service in other countries. You know, you have the the genocide against the Rohingya being fomented on Facebook. You have uh, other ethnic violence uh, being fomented in Ethiopia right now against uh, people who live in Tigray. So, you know, they seem sort of impervious is the wrong word, but Facebook seems less interested in those concerns than in, than in criticisms you hear from a U.S. audience. So my question is, there's a lot of talk in, in the U.S. right now about the need to regulate Facebook. Are there things that the U.S. Congress could do that might help people in countries like the Philippines, like Ethiopia, uh, that might have less, you know, direct sway over a, a, a company abroad? There's a lot that they can do. And, you know, let me start with something positive that, that these social media platforms have proven to us, right? I've been a journalist. This is my 35th year as a journalist. And, you know, I spend a lot of time in different cultures. And as a reporter, you focus on the differences or you focus on, on reporting uh, that nation, that culture, different languages. But what the social media platform, platforms proved is that we all have far more in common 
then we have differences, right? Because the very same algorithms that manipulate you are the same ones used to manipulate us in the Philippines, Mm -hmm. Sri Lanka. We got to add that onto the list because that has had tremendous impact, right? So in that sense, I actually, you know, the biggest thing that I think they could do, which would be enlightened self-interest is that they now know how they've been manipulated for bad, for evil, for power, for money, uh, how states have used it for geopolitical power play. And we already have the data. Facebook released some of that data of which states have done this, right? The reason why we set up Rappler was to try to understand information cascades and to try to amplify the good. Because the other part that these social media platforms have have forgotten is that, yes, anger does spread, but on Rappler, on our mood meter and our mood navigator, happiness and inspiration spread. It was the number one mood on our mood navigator hmm. from 2012 to 2016. Now, granted, hmm. we don't have viral spread and you know news organizations. We don't manipulate our people. We didn't have algorithmic amplification, but I feel like Actually, it's not just Facebook. It is the social media platforms let go of the resilience and the goodness of human nature by amplifying what they have. So I I think the first is, you know, stop the insidious manipulation, turn up news ecosystem quality. That's something they finally admitted after January 6th in the United States that there is a ranking yeah. for facts, fact-based, evidence-based. And when after January 6th in the U.S., when they turned up the NEQ, like a button, like a dial, uh, mm-hmm. and CrowdTangle then showed which ones were 1 through 10, the top 10 were NPR, New York Times, CNN, you know, fact-based, evidence-based, accountable to the people. Uh, and then... After a while, they realize that when news, when facts are actually in the public sphere, it doesn't make them as much money. And so they dialed it back down. I think that, you know, this is enlightened self-interest. They have to decide. This is why all the points for legislation will still take years to do. But we in the Philippines have elections in May 2022, and we will not have integrity of elections without integrity of facts. Yeah, it's a very good point. It's a very good point that you can dial up the quality of the news people are getting. And also the idea that only negative, angry, overheated conversations go viral is kind of undercut by the existence of TikTok, which based on my experience is lots of fun, Fun. happy, silly shit that makes me feel okay. Um, You mentioned the election. Uh, uh, President Duterte says he's resigning next year. Fingers crossed. Uh, There will be an election in May. What do we know about who might come next or if it's a relative of his, perhaps? Uh, Two points, I think. One is that uh, the Duterte family has introduced something to national politics in the Philippines that's never really happened before, which is this concept of substitution. You know, this family has held the southern city of Davao since 1988. And so what substitution means is that we don't know who the final uh, candidates for presidency will be. Supposedly, it ended a week week ago, right? Uh, The Friday that I found out about the Nobel Prize was the last day of declaring your candidacy, but we don't know because the period of substitution goes until November 15th. So let's see what the Dutertes do then because they could substitute. Um, But I think the second thing is that this is going to be a battle for facts. Our elections is, again, your microcosm because 35 years after 
the Marcos family was chased out of the Philippines by a people power revolt and they fled to Hawaii. Um, the son, Ferdinand Marcos Jr., Bong Bong Marcos, declared he is running for president. And, you know, Rappler has exposed his disinformation networks in 2019. We did a three-part series to just show how we are being insidiously manipulated to, in plain sight, revise history, right? Polish the Marcos name. And here's the connection to geopolitical power play. When Facebook did its fourth takedown in September last year, they took down an information operations from China. And they took it down for several reasons. One, it was creating fake accounts for the U.S. elections and using AI-generated photos. But the main targets hmm. were Southeast Asia, and it was most successful in the Philippines, where it was, one, already campaigning for the daughter of President Duterte for president. Wow. So that was September 2020. It was also polishing the Marcos image, and it was attacking me and Rappler, right? So I have hmm. to thank Facebook for taking this down, but that is... That is geopolitical power play. So they're right. actually already doing information operations September last year for our May 2020 elections. We already have evidence it's happening. That is remarkable. Maybe we can trade you Donald Trump Jr. or maybe even Eric for Duterte's daughter. Just sort of swap them, get them off the field. I don't know. I'm just spitballing here. Last question. Uh, how do listeners uh, support your work uh, can they subscribe? Is there like a contribution jar? Like, how does this work for them? Um, well, thank you for asking. Uh, you know, we like like most news organizations, our business model crumbled, the advertising model. But now our readers have come to our rescue. You know, we had we have a, a membership model. So I will send you a link, please. Uh, but I think more than that, you know, please look at where you are, your area of influence. Social media has made democracy a man-to-man, woman-to-woman defense. And mm-hmm. the lies spread faster, but civil society still moves at the pace of human comprehension and human action. So in your area of influence, police for facts. I hate to use police, but, you know, please. It's kind of, I always, I'm writing this book, right? So I went back to the honor code in 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 the college I graduated from, where we said every exam we pledge on our honor that we not, we don't cheat, but beyond that, that in our area of influence, that if we see anyone violating, that we jump in and report them. I guess that's, you know, this is it. I think the Nobel Committee gave this to journalists because we are at an existential moment. And the last time this this prize went to a journalist, he languished in a Nazi concentration camp. In wow. so so we're there again. So please help us maintain, keep the facts alive. That is a great, great admonition, um, Maria. Thank you so much for the work you're doing. Thank, I know I know journalism is a team sport, so thank you to your entire team, who I know is working under duress, 24 hours a day, cranking out articles um, about you know some some scary um, people um, and and you know. It's amazing. It's really, it's really uh, incredibly powerful. And thank you again. Good luck to you as well. Thank you. Thanks again to Maria Ressa for joining the show. Uh, thanks to our wizard friend, Jack is his first name. Wizard.gen.nz. <laughs> if you want to experience it in all its glory. 
I just want. I just don't want to learn that like he's like canceled for some horrible. Thing. Yeah, that's gonna yeah. suck. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Disclaimer: We didn't know. Yeah. If, if, like if if we have a bunch of Kiwis tweeting at us, we didn't know. Yeah, I didn't read that yeah, many yeah, yeah, st- yeah. articles about the last. Uh, he has sort of like a bulleted resume, and one of them just says "living work of art." He's describing himself. That's fine. So I'll, that's I'll fine. take I that. I think of myself like that sometimes. Yeah, me too. Awarded the Queen's Service Medal, two thousand nine. Well, that's legit. Okay, He's so validated. he he vets. Yeah. All right. Uh, Maria Ressa, amazing woman. Incredible. Just, and Rappler, people should support. And, yeah. You know, uh, Hook them up with a subscription. And, and the one thing I'll, I'll put to something, you know, there's that great video of her learning about uh, winning the award. Mm-hmm. In part, because she's talking, like, Southeast Asia needs, um, she was talking to other journalists from Southeast Asia. Like, I mean, all regions need this, but, like, man, it takes some guts in that part of the world. To, totally. To be, a, like, a, a real investigative, unbowed journalist. Um so yeah, I mean, hopefully she. There, there are many other people that share in that award, and and uh, yeah, just about yeah. Us. When the when the dude you're reporting on is, uh, you know, his his lackeys are killing people killing in the people. streets, killing people, and putting signs on them as threats to yeah. others. Yeah, it's real bravery. The best is there's a there's a YouTube up of the Nobel Committee calling her. Yeah, so in the video when she learns about it, she's being interviewed by this guy Ian Yee, who was an Obama Foundation leader from Malaysia, right? Another tough place. And what's so funny about this video, everybody should watch it because it's super heartwarming because she is it it looks like your pretty ordinary daytime zoom. You know, like a yeah. zoom panel like yeah, this, all of a sudden. there's like four boxes and suddenly like one woman is like crying and they're like they don't know what's going on. She's like, I just won the Nobel Peace Prize. And it's like think about when you've been interrupted in a zoom and it's like, oh, I'm sorry, uh Yeah my dog yeah, barked like dog barked or like the you know the garbage trucks outside. That's a pretty good, like, you know, thing to drop on your Zoom. It will be announced that you are awarded the Nobel Peace Prize for 2021. And we will come back to you later with more information. Uh, But I would be delighted to hear your immediate spontaneous reaction to this news. I, I am speechless. Thank you so very much. I'm glad to hear. And and please, Maria, uh, you must not tell others about this until 11 o'clock when the news is officially uh, broken from here. Is that fine? Yes, until 11 o'clock. Until 11 o'clock. Great. Okay, I have to say goodbye now. (laughs) (laughs) He sounds delighted. She's so great and such a human. human. My favorite is like, I'd like to hear your spontaneous reaction because <laughs> like it's not spontaneous if so dry. Like, like yeah yeah please be spontaneous <laughs> good uh it's so good are we still on okay we're all right, uh yeah, we go. show's good. Good. all right good to see you <laughs> talk to you guys next week pod save the world is a crooked media production the executive producer is Michael Martinez. Our producer is Haley Muse. It's mixed and edited by Andrew Chadwick. Kyle Seglin is our sound engineer. Thanks to our digital team, Elijah Cohn, Yale Freed, and Phoebe Bradford, who film and share our episodes as videos each week. <laughs>